0: Hi, I'm Dan from South Wales, and you're listening to Dame Baptiste Questions Everything. Uh, Simply put, my question is, how do we stop this shit? And you can interpret that however you like in less than a minute. Okay, Dioch boys, uh, here comes the show, and remember, question everything.
2: Hello everybody and welcome to Dame Baptiste's Questions Everything, a podcast for myself, comedian writer and occasional actor Dame Baptiste. My producer friend Howard Cohen, a.k.a. Dehiza, who is currently in Adsemsha due to man flu, which I believe has mutated from baby germs. So uh, shout out to Howard uh, and a mix of very special guests pose the questions that need to be asked. And we are talking everything from our question is from Dan from South Wales. And he says, how do we stop this shit? You can interpret that however you like. It's a very good question, Dan. I guess you have to uh, locate the same proverbial shit pipe and try and stop the flow of shit there. Or what we probably need, Dan, is for everybody to recognize that there's shit everywhere. Uh, that's the problem. Is that like you know, it's one thing seeing shit, but if people don't can't see shit and can deny they smell shit, especially those that have dealt it, then it's gonna be very hard, Dan. But uh, suffice it to say. We answer all the questions here. No questions are too big, too small, too intelligent, too stupid. And most of all, no questions are too shitty. So if you do like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify and you'll never miss an episode. Or you can subscribe to us on ACAST, the world's biggest podcast network to hear all of the very special questions being asked and answered by our very special guests. With that being said... On today's show is a forensic psychiatrist, YouTuber and podcaster. His day job as a forensic psychiatrist where he acts as an expert witness and he rehabilitates mentally disordered offenders. I've seen him appear across a variety of TV programmes such as BBC, GB News, This Morning and alongside myself on Steph's Pat Lunch. As well as this, he also has a series called A Psych for Sore Minds which discusses true crime, mental health or sometimes both. Please welcome to the show Mr
1: Shaham Das mr baptiste thank you so much for having me on no it's a pleasure how are you sir yeah i'm all right i'm all right looking well new
2: haircut since i last saw you very stylish i had this
1: done this morning actually
2: i can tell it's uh, very fresh uh i feel very self-conscious about it but uh it's good and thank you for taking the time to uh yeah (laughs) make an effort for our new incarnation of the podcast um how do you think we stop this shit? And this is not the main question, but would you accept we're in a shitty situation now? Do you think the situation is shitty based on your, your
1: research? I think that the situation's been shitty for many, many years. I, I agree. Think, I don't think I quite sort of Understood or realised politics when I was when I was you know younger, a teenager, even as a young adult. But it just seems like there's just issue after issue from COVID to wars to government. How do we stop it? I think that's a difficult question. I think money is the key answer to all of this. Yeah, everything's about maybe
2: that. Maybe that's what the shit really is. Is that uh, capitalism really has just given way for all the other shit? Uh, I mean, yeah, shit can take a number of different forms, but I think we can all agree that we are in a shit situation right now. Um, speaking from a psychiatric perspective, does things seem to be getting shittier? Because I feel like, you know, there is a large emphasis being placed on mental health nowadays. And for me, I think the most, for lack of a better expression, mental thing is that people probably don't realise uh, the the severity of the times we're living in and how precarious they are, are and what effect they will have on people. Particularly, I think I notice this the most when we started seeing the uh, resurgence of the war slogan keep calm and carry on yeah it's like why are you telling people to do that what's going to happen that's going to make us a lot less than calm
1: so so I think when we look at sort of mental health and mental illness as a as a general beast mm-hmm. it's definitely things are getting worse right so yeah. there is always been an underfunding for services in the mm-hmm. nhs uh, that's you know we've known that for years i think with everything from you know covid to the cost of living rising people's mental health is just going to deteriorate yeah. i think part of the problem is there's a bit of a lag so it doesn't necessarily happen straight away it happens years later so yes. it kind of it's easy to to forget the causes of it all
2: Escapism uh, when you're younger escapism is a lot easier to find i think and uh, yeah you can and uh...
1: I do think a couple Mm -hmm. of things are getting slightly better. So one specific thing that jumps out to me is I think people are are now more open to talk about the mental health issues than ever before. Mm -hmm. You know, like 10, 15 years ago, you didn't really have celebrities that come out and talk about, you know, depression, anxiety. Now people are doing that, which is in theory a good thing, right? Mm Because in theory, it helps people in similar situations feel a bit more empowered and a bit more able to speak out about it. But I'd also say that it, for people with serious severe mental illness so the people that i see you know people with schizophrenia who are in and out of prison mm. in and out of hospital they don't have any kind of celebrity representation yes. So i think there's a slight irony that they might feel even more mar- marginalized like where's their representation it's a very good point
2: voice? um with that being said before we do go into the stream of consciousness even though howard is an absentia he would want us to uh keep with the tradition of the podcast and at this particular juncture Uh, as our very esteemed guest i'd like to invite you to ask the first question which can be any question you'd like which we'd like to discuss for about 30 minutes and some change given that howard is no longer here and then Sharm, i'd like to pose a question to you uh regarding myself and my mental health which we'd like to discuss as well and then we'd love for you to tell our listeners and viewers where they can find out about your good works past present and future how does that sound sounds perfect let's do it cool well the floor is yours sir to (laughs) ask the first question of me okay so also saffron chilling in the cut as well Feel free to chip in there as well, <laughs> Saffron. You're not just going to get away with being a stenographer and taking minutes this time around. Oh.
1: <laughs> so I've got I've got quite what I think is quite a deep question. And mm. the reason I ask it is because I think it kind of relates to the work that I do. And it's something that I get yeah. asked either directly or indirectly quite a lot, which is this. Do you think that in theory anybody should or can be rehabilitated no matter how horrific their crime is?
2: I think it's a very good question. I think in the spirit of our podcast, uh, I should ask on behalf of my co-host Howard Cohen, What has influenced this question?
1: I suppose because in my line of work, I see a wide range of offences, right? Mm -hmm. I see everything from fairly minor uh, offences that have been caused in the context of mental illness, Mm -hmm. like anything from minor assaults to destruction of property to what I think most of the public view is very heinous crimes. Like I'm talking yes. about people that kill strangers, uh, people that have harmed their own children, even kill their own children, sexual assaults. Mm-hmm. And I definitely feel that, and, and I completely understand why there is a pressure on, not pr- I don't pressure is the right word, but there is a sympathy for the lower end of the spectrum. But mm-hmm. some people think they should just th- uh, lock them up and throw away the key yeah. if it's more of a heinous thing. So I suppose I'm, I'm trying to figure out what the public or your, your opinion is where the cutoff point is.
2: Well, you know, I think it's a very good point. And I think a lot of the time, you know, it's, it's the idea uh, that people tend to contextualize all of the issues and conditions that you were discussing along very binary lines of morality, rather than talking to them about them in a clinical or uh, psychological way. And uh, I think that's a, uh, a culture that's definitely uh, perpetuated by mainstream media um I think over the last couple of years there's been this very strange um and very insidious suggestion coming from mainstream media to encourage people to uh I suppose lobby for more punitive measures when it comes to like violent crimes as instead of rehabilitative ones as well as I think um You know you hear people like You need to bring back hanging Or life should mean life And and also especially uh, I believe along the lines of policies Made by our government This uh, suggestion to kind of For people to support capital punishment While simultaneously um, Watching the erasure of our human rights Um, So I'd say That's probably one of the reasons why That question comes up for me as well But for me I'd say the short answer is I think it is possible for rehabilitation to take place. But I think that there are a, probably a lot of uh, nuanced scenarios that uh, different types of rehabilitation can apply to. So I'd say in the first instance, I think rehabilitation is possible no matter how heinous the crime is. Because I think even crime, this definition of it, is down to semantics. Because if the idea is that someone's killed strangers, that's a part of your normal job as a, as a soldier, for example. But you wouldn't be evaluated as having uh, sociopathic or psychotic tendencies if you carried out murders on behalf of your country, no matter how grisly they are. Um, And I think by the same token... So I say this, that uh, I think rehabilitation can be possible in some cases, depending on the mind state of a perpetrator. And I think what is required to begin a process of rehabilitation would be accountability. I think there are some people who if they've grown up and and you probably be able to verify it or not I think some people who do commit violent crimes a lot of it comes from the fact that displays of violence and uh, people themselves being mortally attacked is something that is normalised in their upbringing yeah. and so to project that same violence onto people and onto strangers seems like a normal practice and if someone thinks perfect example being most people in southern states of America have been taught I mean inculcated with the idea that it's okay to kill a black person that mm-hmm. they are free fists of a human being this is an idea that's passed on transgenerationally and we see very as we saw with uh, George Floyd like somebody who was tortured in public view for long enough to kill him twice and there are still some people that will try to find justification for that behaviour Yeah. whereas which to me if you if that was a civilian doing that to another civilian you'd be watching a snuff video. But within the guise of law enforcement, it's acceptable. So I think rehabilitation can happen. But I think in some cases, accountability has to happen first. Someone needs to understand what they've done, why what they've done is either wrong or illegal, amoral or damaging to another sentient being. Because if you don't know you've done something wrong, it's going to be very difficult for you to change that pattern of behaviour or address it
1: i'm going to push the boundaries of that question by saying yeah do you, would you still concur with everything you have said for like um somebody who's committed a sexual act against a child or um sexual abuse uh, or like a serial killer or a mass killer would you still feel the same way
2: um it's very i think it's tough because i think it, it'd be very easy for me to say it and it would be like you know maybe someone but i think depending on how these things p- affect people personally can definitely influence the answer so i try to be objective as possible when I'm, I'm speaking about it um i think again in the cases of like sexual abuse particularly like child molestation i think um rehabilitation is possible in some cases but i think it's again requires the evaluation as you said because okay. i've I, someone told me once that there's a difference between paedophilia and child molestation yeah because paedophilia is a disposition is someone who Finds himself attracted to children. Now, for me, I'm very cynical about that because I think there is there has been some people that have lobbied for that to almost be recognised as a sexual orientation or for people to make uh, allowances for that. Now, I disagree with that, a on moral grounds, but also because because of the fact that childhood is a temporary state for someone to say that I'm perpetually attracted to a particular child or want to have a a, a relationship with them for me well there's not going to be much longevity in that because that person who's a child is eventually going to go through secondary sexual development and become an adult so then if your basis for them is paedophilia then how long can that last for um and then again i'd say as well because it's it can be a behavior that is normalized within families within a particular culture then again it can sometimes it's about making someone aware that they are committing a crime yeah. However, I think there are in cases where some people, as I was saying to saffron before um molestation can be a facet of sociopathy or people who even a form of bullying uh that people use particularly to subjugate or oppress somebody who they perceive to be more vulnerable and in the same way that like where people aren't able to if they feel they aren't able to assert power in other circles they can do that onto someone they perceive as defenseless and in some cases and again you can verify for me with a lot of these things people have experienced the trauma themselves yeah. and then they recreate that same paradigm of trauma where they're in control and they have the autonomy over it and to them it's a way of reclaiming power in a situation where they were historically
1: powerless so i'm just going to expand on a couple of those points that's right so i completely agree with what you said about pedophilia being different from child abuse so pedophilia is a paraphilia so paraphilias are unusual sexual interests or desires in uh, situations and i also think those are
2: those are definitely and i think when you discuss those there is a discussion to be had about nature versus nurture because i think one of the reasons why pedophilia has probably become more prolific within society is that the sexualization of children or images that are normally associated with children have increased significantly like i have a joke as like a stand-up where i'm like you can go to a sex shop and get like a naughty schoolgirl outfit or a naughty cheerleader outfit like i remember an episode of friends when rachel's dressed up like a cheerleader yeah. to get josh and i'm like well but you why don't have that?
1: the equivalent for teenage boys yeah, yeah did, exactly yeah. Senior, yeah so
2: but and, and that so that is a, for me that's an example of like the image of young or juvenile females or girls is sexualized and that's normalized where you're able to do that
1: But I think the problem is what do you do with those people? So what do you do with those people that have paedophilia or or paraphilia? I think the knee-jerk reaction is kind of demonize them, call them evil you know, spit at them, try and get rid of them from your community, but only actually a very small proportion of them go on to actually physically abuse children. Yeah, And I think the problem with that, taking morality uh, morality completely out of it, just thinking logically, mm. is that if you don't offer them any kind of support, you're going to push them underground and they're more likely to offend that way. Yeah, There are some charities that exist, they're not particularly po- popular charities, they're not the kind of thing that you're going to give money to on the street, uh, who help people in that situation. So mm. they help them realise what they're doing is wrong, look at some of their cognitive distortions, and basically make sure they don't take, that step so they don't yeah. have beliefs or inner thoughts such as you know a child can be openly provocative in my eyes you know that is something you can challenge and work on in therapy and
2: and and, and again I'm, i imagine there's a factor of uh mental or psychological development that can all because some people in their own brains are teenagers and so for them to be attracted to a teenager or how or perceived to be or want to be around children is not a function of them being necessarily sexually predatory. It's just because of their level of development means that's how they see themselves yeah absolutely So, in, in my yeah.
1: patient group i see a lot of people with learning disabilities mm-hmm. or some kind of developmental disorder like autism or asperger's to be crystal clear the vast majority of people those diagnoses are not dangerous but i've certainly yeah. seen some that do sexually offend and sometimes against children and this is exactly as you say it's because their level of kind of cognitive ability and intelligence is lower so they're unable to integrate into adult society they're unable to find a, a normal sexual healthy output Yes. so that's why they, they end up and thinking.
2: it's funny because we were, we uh, spoke to a, a, a an advocate for sex workers last week and you know I was saying the same thing as well is that the the fact that we fail to do criminalised sex work means that what would normally be an outlet for somebody who might be able to indulge these people's more I guess taboo fantasies yeah. doesn't exist and what happens is then that this is then turned onto uh, innocent civilians or people who are not consenting to these practices um so yeah I, I think the rehabilitation thing it's um i think the nature of the re- rehabilitation as well probably uh influences how to answer this question correctly because i remember watching the documentary about louis three did a documentary on like a uh prison in the states which yeah, was for, yeah. uh, for pedophiles yeah. and they were using like there was like some i think chemical castration was one of the things they wanted to use and stuff as well and then yeah some some uh, therapy And I remember one of the guys who was locked up there who was basically saying, but then what happens to us when we're cured? Or how do we, if we're cured, will will they let us back out? Like, what's going to happen next? And I thought it was a very interesting uh, point that he kind of made because it's like, is this something that we can completely work out of people? Or is it that we just keep locking them up? Is that going to solve the problem? But yeah, I I, I think, yeah, rehabilitation is an interesting one because it's, that's supposed to be the idea of having people incarcerated is that they're a danger to to themselves or society. And that's why people are either put in a secure unit or they are, uh, imprisoned. But, you know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, people within the prison system, or there's a lot of amenities and facilities in the prison system that were used to rehabilitate, whether it's access to education, access to therapy that are being eroded and they are being underfunded. But at the same time, people are calling for more punitive measures for, criminals or for re-offenders yeah. and it's weird that people don't really see the link where it's like if you're not taking care of them in the first place well recidivism is going to be inevitable after that and also if if the idea is just to punish somebody people who have probably grown up in an environment where physical punishment has been a natural part of their lives anyway yeah. well you just have the phenomenon of hardened criminals because I, you know, I can speak for people from my community where it's like all the cry all the all doing a jail uh, doing jail time does to somebody is sometimes just steals their resolve because they're like well I've done my fucking time and I could handle that so
1: yeah it's almost like there's no deterrent for them
2: yeah it's not, it, it's not really a deterrent so yeah in in that case I guess it makes it a uh, much more a convoluted conversation because I guess to make it easier do, do you think that there are there instances where you've maybe had to conclude that someone can't be rehabilitated
1: I think I think everyone, I think you can try and rehabilitate everybody. Yes. But some people won't engage in that therapy, right? So I'll I'll break down a bit more simply. So within the defendants that I see, especially when I'm giving expert witness evidence, right? There's kind of a spectrum. Mm -hmm. One end of the spectrum, you've got people with pure mental illnesses. Yes. So people with like schizophrenia, typically hearing voices, paranoid delusions. In theory, they're quite easy to treat because all you have to do is find the right medication at the right dose. Mm -hmm. Those symptoms go and their risk decreases simple on the other end of the spectrum you get people with personality disorders you know people who are antisocial mm-hmm. or people who are psychopaths and that's more uh, ingrained It's part of their actual characteristics they yeah. are you know impulsive aggressive lack empathy don't care about the rights of other people they are a far more persistent stain it's a l- much much harder to rehabilitate them mm-hmm. and then there's everything in the middle yeah. so to answer your question I think in theory you can try rehabilitation on everybody yeah. but you can't really predict when it's going to work or not mm-hmm. you have to go through the process and it's a long you know uh, very detailed process so you do that in prison to a degree, not particularly well in my view, but uh, I've been more involved in it in like medium secure psychiatric units. Yeah. And I think it definitely does work for some people, but not everybody. You need that in an epiphany yeah. and motivation. And,
2: and I think also it's like, I suppose, the uh, when someone's psychological disposition isn't just a, as I said before, it's not just a function or that happens uh, through nature. Like, there's not, I don't think there's necessarily a genetic imprint for your psychological disposition or your state of being there are other factors so for example and it can be difficult to explain it's like uh i think someone that spoken about a case of like like i said killing children for example i guess most people assume there is no rehabilitation for that but then if you've seen someone in your family be killed by a children or your life has been threatened then do we go and punish your parents even if they may not have succeeded necessarily succeeded in killing you but we're an abusive household yeah. are we to overlook whatever external factors have resulted in this person having whatever dissociative or sociopathic or psychotic disorders
1: yeah
2: like do we not go to do we go to the source do we blame the parents because i think a lot of the time it's it's a very difficult conversation to have because it's always contextualized long morality in terms of people's actions yeah and um obviously theology also plays a big part as well where even Outside of our legal system, the idea is that if you commit sin within Abrahamic religion, you'll go to hell or go to a dark place. And I, and I always find it is quite a strange concept that, like, if you commit sin in a lifetime, which may last for about 70 years, is burning for eternity like a fair punishment? Cause I was only alive for 70 years and then for <laughs> at least five of those, I couldn't really kill anybody. <laughs> so then surely it isn't it 65 years then? Okay. And I, I, and that's and that's what I kind of consider it because, because the idea that you'd burn for eternity For something you only did for 70 years of your human life Seems like it's not particularly balanced
1: Yeah, I've got to be um, honest I've never thought that
2: <laughs> Yeah, because at some point like I imagine if someone burned for like a thousand years
1: That seems fair to you
2: Well no, it doesn't seem fair to me Because <laughs> I, I imagine the human mind A thousand years would be a long time to ponder your actions Okay And
1: so, uh, if you're you the pro- devil, you probably
2: forget you'd probably forget after a while what you did or what you <laughs> what you were burning for in the first place.
1: If you were in charge of hell, if you're the devil, hypothetically speaking, yeah. You, what do you think's a fair amount of time for somebody to burn in eternity?
2: Well, I think uh, that should have been my question. Well, no, now. yeah, maybe, but no, because it's all related. But I guess for me, it's more of a question of, um, I, I think it goes back to um, accountability and I think and also empathy, yeah. and I think if it if somebody who has perpetrated a uh, a crime against somebody or hurt somebody stemming from a pace of malice yeah i think for them to see how that affects somebody for whatever means will probably be much more effective because i mean more simply put people say hurt people hurt people yeah. and i think again i'd prefer for you to verify when you look at the commonality between a lot of people that are who are diagnosed as psychopaths or uh, commit acts of of violence or homicide
1: so it sounds like you're talking about bringing the therapeutic structure to hell rather than burning people well
2: i've never been there yet (laughs) but then even then it's like i also feel like hell hell is obviously a human concept as far as we understand it because no one ever comes back to tell us what it's like and very clearly you know there are certain elements of hell that maybe people have in their minds like when people think about or when people have shown depictions of what they perceive hell to be like As I'm sure you've found it in evaluations, that's what some people are carrying around in their heads anyway.
0: We'll be back after this. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST.
1: Welcome back to the show. I think you earlier you touched on a really important point, which is an uncomfortable truth, which is the vast majority of people, defendants that I see who've committed violence, come from really broken backgrounds. You know, yep. They're v- victims of physical or even sexual abuse themselves. Yep. Uh, they grow up in an environment where they see conflict being resolved through violence, domestic mm-hmm. violence, for example, seeing their fathers assault their mothers it's really typical in my patient yeah. group it goes even further i'd say maybe 90 to 95 percent of the people that i assess have some kind of horrific trauma in their background yeah. and they lack empathy and uh, the reason they lack empathy is because they're never socialized they weren't taught what is a normal way to yeah. react to people
2: it's like your brain doesn't really form certain centers and chemical releases unless they're able to experience empathy themselves and same like you know if a child isn't touched when they're first born they'll die because they don't you're not able to process contact and there's how and if you're if you feel isolated or like as a especially as a part of a social species it's very hard for you to relate to said species yeah if you've not really had anything that is uh tantamount to actual human contact or to understand humanity.
1: Absolutely, so you uh, mentioned before people grow up, growing up in South America having this mm. kind of predis, this racist predisposition. Something that I see very commonly is kind of gang members so I've assessed mm. numerous gang members who have committed violence and they have this kind of street mentality and this paranoia but they need that to function because yeah. if they if they don't react with aggression if they're not paranoid if they're not looking over their shoulders then they will become a victim when yeah. they're in their kind of you know neighborhood selling drugs that's the kind of environment they grow up in and what we're talking about the rehabilitation is unlearning all of those core beliefs which yeah. is hugely complicated and time consuming and
2: i think yeah and i think i think a lot of people don't realize how many uh however uh, inappropriate they are how many methods of self-medication and self-soothing mm-hmm. or like i said uh defense mechanisms the human mind is able to create in order to for the purpose of survival yeah and um, you know it's we see animals kill each other in very grisly f- f- ways in terms of the competition normally for habitat or for food and yet it's it's very strange that we don't credit ourselves with being capable of the same thing yeah and and I guess it's because of our understanding of morality that it makes it a v- very difficult to understand but yeah I guess I guess I guess uh, for me it's also defining what is a horrible horrible crime because i think that also makes it very difficult where you know typically very easy way to use a personification of evil people talk about adolf hitler for example and i don't dispute that but what i do dispute is the fact that he didn't kill six million people by himself but still exists as a singularity for the quintessential example of evil yeah for me we could rehabilitate one person but I think what's more important and as we saw in Germany was an entire national uh, de-brainwashing had to take place yeah. to, in order to, to de-legitimise what actually happened there. And as I say, I say by the same token, it's very easy for us to talk about people who commit heinous crimes and say they don't need to be rehabilitated. But as far as I'm concerned, if we're using that brush, for me, there are people who watch lynchings and you see them in pictures. They're still walking around today. Yeah. I think if you watched an innocent human being being murdered and they had a barbecue or a picnic afterwards, yeah. there's something wrong with you. But this is normalised in certain elements of society because we can because there are external factors which should which can create a narrative of dehumanisation which justifies behaviour to one group of people compared to another. In the same way that like while six million Jews and communists and homosexuals were killed during the Holocaust in Germany and Poland, King Leopold in Belgium killed eleven million people in the Congo. around the same time and he's not called
1: one of the most evil people that walked the face of the earth yeah so so what do you think that's about do you think that's about propaganda of what the media exposes us to i think partially to media and i think it's just because like
2: in very extreme cases our morality can be a a spectrum which can kind of move depending on whatever ruling powers are in place and are disseminating the morality to uh, a larger populace and i also think it's um and i also think as well is that like you know people just don't really seem i think as i said it's like if one person dies it's a tragedy where if millions die it's a statistic yeah, yeah and i think again it's people it shows that people can be very capable of being disassociative when it kind of suits them or again as a very good survival tactic yeah and i think you know there's uh we see it all the time when we hear case after case of innocent black person being killed in America and immediately what follows is a suggestion that that person had close ties to criminality yeah. in order to justify their death. And, and so you have this whole paradigm whereby it's like if someone has close proximity to crime, then them receiving some kind of punitive um, treatment is much more justified. Yeah. So like, for example, when Breonna Taylor was murdered, there was a suggestion that her boyfriend was a drug dealer and that's why she got caught in a crossfire I'm like, if you lived in London over the last 20 years and you ain't been near cocaine, you're a fucking liar. Yeah. You are a fucking liar. If you work in entertainment and you ain't been around cocaine, you're also a fucking liar. (laughs) So for me, like, yeah, I think it's a rehabilitation becomes very difficult when um, we use singularity in terms of, uh, or accusation to pin immorality on some people, but we don't, commonly really evaluate our collective morality as a society yeah and I think that's what makes it difficult
1: so I think when it, when it comes to whether rehabilitation will work if you look at it purely not from a morality or yeah. an ethical lens just purely scientific and clinically yeah. then and, and don't judge whether somebody's evil or not like you know I, I might have these thoughts in my in my mind but, I wouldn't yeah, them but, but my because it's subjective my as well yeah, yeah, yeah the idea of evil the first thing you do is you remove what you can remove so i talked mm-hmm. about be- people before that might have clear symptoms of mental illness so mm-hmm. if they're psychotic hearing voices paranoid Um, that's relatively easy to 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 treat not to solve but to treat right Mm -hmm. medication is available it's not always that effective but that's a whole different conversation then you take away other risk factors that you can treat so drug and alcohol use is a huge one in fact i'll go further to say that of the people that i'm asked to assess on behalf of the court more of them have drug and alcohol problems uh, by a a large factor than that have serious mental health issues Mm -hmm. um and then after you've stripped those things away or treated them, then it becomes a little bit more difficult. Then you have to start trying to take away the cognitive distortions that it's we talking about. So misogynistic views, um, just kind of hateful core beliefs. Racist views. And, Racist and, views, and But absolutely. then the thing is,
2: again, and that's what I mean, is, like then at that point, if we're singling or focusing on these kind of regressive views of somebody, then is it the society in which has maybe encouraged these uh, ideas that we have to really use more rehabilitative measures for, or do we focus on one particular person? Because, as you said, like people have misogynistic views, which may influence their sexual assault of children or women. Yeah, if they've grown up in a society where women are treated as second-class citizens, yeah, or we turn a blind eye to like ritualistic violence towards them.
1: So I suppose my answer to that would be: in an ideal world, you'd want to address it on a societal level. Mm. But in reality, it's really, really hard to do that. Yeah, even to do it on an, oh, an course, individual yeah, yeah. is very difficult. But at least you've got the parameters of them being on a psychiatric ward or of them being in a prison, and you get to have an appointment where you sit down with them. You know, do your psychological therapy. So it's almost like they're a uh, they're a trapped kind of uh, yeah. victim of your of your therapy, rather than the whole society. It's mm. good, man.
2: I mean obviously there's two of us today i wanted to use that question to, to lead into my question towards you which will continue the discussion sure so basically i have been called a psychopath okay not just <clears throat> vocally this is now uh, in a literary form where <laughs> okay. uh, an ex-partner has released a book called okay. how to leave your psychopath now my name is not mentioned directly but it's been suggested by people who have also accused me that I have been implicated as displaying psychopathic behaviour. Okay. Now, I don't know, we don't have loads of time, but um, I feel like you would be expert enough to identify certain pathological behaviours, yep. which might be tantamount
1: to me being a psychopath. Okay. So... Can I ask you, first of all, what behaviours do you think you've been accused of that would might indicate you're a psychopath? So are you able to give me some specific examples? Of I couldn't space? think of anything
2: specific, but, I mean, everyone will... Perceive someone who breaks up with them or leaves them to lack empathy. Yeah. So it could be just be breaking up with somebody and asking for some money back.
1: Okay.
2: <laughs> That's the only thing I can think of off the top of my head. Okay. Um, but yeah, I say could maybe a very a very arbitrary valuation.
1: Okay. All right. Well, first of all, I'll tell you what a, what a typical psychopath is, mm-hmm. and then we'll look at whether yes. any of these behaviours are relevant to you. Because the not.
2: world wants to know is am I crazy I know Saffron wonders all the time every, at least every two weeks is, so.
1: is Dane Baptiste a psychopath is Dane I, think, Baptiste I think there's a, a spin-off uh, podcast in this one right, I think
2: yeah. there definitely is and a TV <laughs> show as well if you're watching out there
1: uh, okay so a lot of people misunderstand what a psychopath is right they think of it as somebody who's just aggressive or violent or you know loses their shit uh, can't control themselves actually a psychopath is not that in some ways it's the opposite of that so a psychopath is as you said somebody that lacks empathy mm-hmm. but lots of people lack empathy who are not psychopaths Yeah if you had 100 people that lack empathy you'd call,
2: you'd call them a capitalist or a hedge fund manager
1: yeah yeah, yeah so. and also you have to look at it in the context of a situation so lacking empathy in a breakup of a relationship is very different from lacking empathy in a, in your day-to-day life amongst everybody that you're with right psychopaths um, they're impulsive they're quite criminally versatile they're quite sexually promiscuous but the biggest thing about them is they're parasitic and they're manipulative so a true psychopath that that came up okay
2: (laughs) not from me okay but that in terms of the uh description of my of myself and or the composite in the book was yeah someone who actually seeks to
1: ruin other people's lives okay i'm going to come back and ask you about that um a psychopath is very manipulative so they so psychopaths are massively overrepresented in the corporate world like CEOs politicians mm-hmm. as well as like aggressive criminals and the reason that they do so well in the in the corporate world is because they will stab anybody in the back they will take a promotion they'll talk shit behind their friends behind their backs just do anything to get up the ladder and they mm-hmm. don't care who they uh, who they sort of crush on so the way there, yeah. Yeah. and I'm, I'm not just talking about colleagues I'm talking about friends and family mm-hmm. so they a typical psychopath won't have empathy for anybody even like their wife and their kids they you know they might show some affection towards them but they don't actually really care what happens to them yeah so circling back to all of that if you were a true psychopath you would have all of those traits but it wouldn't just be in the context of this person that you split up with it would be in all of your relationships mm-hmm. so if you're telling me the truth would you say that your friends and family say that you lack empathy with your interactions with them
2: no maybe my twin sister would have said before but I think most of my family would say that I, um, I'm relatively nice to them I think they'd probably say more than being impulsive but they'd probably say that like I, I do have a short fuse yeah. And can become quite neurotic about things. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that would probably be the main thing that, like, maybe prone to
1: angry outbursts. I mean, I, a stretch, you can say that psychopaths are quite impulsive and aggressive, as mm-hmm. as I mentioned before, but that's that's a very small part of what makes up, makes them up. It's, mm-hmm. to, to me, a psychopath is more about being parasitic and being manipulative than it is about being aggressive, necessarily. Mm-hmm. So would you... And again, this is obviously... Uh, skewed me asking these questions right because mm-hmm. if I was doing a proper clinical assessment I wouldn't be yeah. asking just you I'd be looking I'd be getting information from everything else from the in the corner, so if you can work out some <laughs> kind of hand signal <laughs> <laughs> you ain't getting no help girl <laughs> um, would other people all Right. so you do stand up would other people would, do you think if you're, if you're answering this honestly that other stand ups would see you as somebody who kind of leeches off them to try and get a step up the hierarchy of stand-up comedy or are you somebody that's more collaborative and wants to kind of see you all grow together
2: um i think most people say i'm collaborative um i think co- comedy is actually a very solitary art form anyway so i think the idea of being self-serving uh can get banded around quite a bit yeah yeah um but i think on the whole it's a uh i think it's quite a relatively collaborative thing on on the whole but I think yeah, there, there are instances probably where people have maybe comparative envy because it's like for every one gig that everyone else gets or one TV gig you can make it feel like it's something you lost lost out on Yeah, but I think that, that comparison particularly in the advent of social media is more common now anyway
1: yeah so. I've got a question for you. It's a little bit uh, random and a bit obtuse, but I'm generally interested to know. So I, I love stand-up, really into it. I, I was an open micer myself once, didn't, didn't oh, get cool. particularly far, but um, yeah, um, I'm more interested in stand-up than I am in psychiatry, to be honest with you. Um, I'm
2: very interested in psychiatry, so...
1: <laughs> My question is this, without naming any names, have you ever worked with anybody who, I don't want to say necessarily is a clinical psychopath, but are there, uh, have you ever worked with a stand-up comic who fits exactly what I'm saying, who would kind of... Uh, betray other comics or talk shit about them behind their back oh yeah of... loads really
2: yeah loads <laughs> loads and loads and loads to the point where I think as I said I think most comics solitary out for me and there's an expression of anxiety uh, that everyone might talk about somebody else because there's just this uh, really uh, I think especially in the very early stages of stand-up and open mic because it's so saturated yeah yeah I think everyone is kind of like trying to vie for uh, success and power and so
1: yeah but there's a difference between being kind of driven mm-hmm and being, um, you know, just uh, sort of not taking over no an answer. Yeah. And oh, a no,
2: I've, def- I've definitely met comics like that. But that's different from some, actually... In fact, some of those comics have also accused me of being a psychopath and being aggressive, funnily enough. <laughs> but, but what yeah. I was going
1: to ask was, there's a difference between that and somebody who would intentionally destroy or, um, like, talk shit about somebody behind their back or, or try and ruin the the potential progression of other comics. Have you seen that, or do you see that?
2: Yep, yeah, sometimes. Okay. Sometimes. I think, I think, especially when we had the... Uh, very, a very large uh, collective conversation was being had about diversity and representation in 2020, and I noticed that at the same time as this was happening, then there came a, nice, a wave of accusations of uh, sexual impropriety and. Right. Uh, but then the the specificity specificity of those became things like, I don't know, like the way this guy looks at me, or he was he said hello to me, but it was in a very creepy way. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's like massively damaging to like accuse somebody of like sexual assault or violence because you don't like them or they told you no or they told you to fuck off, but. Yeah, it just seemed to happen in parallel to when we were talking about more diversity representation. There seemed to be a thing of like, well, this has happened to me. And uh, I think it was, a, yeah, it was just a weird stage in comedy where I think a lot of people, because like I said, there were more overt conversations, particularly in celebrity, were being had about mental health and people were being uh, very transparent about uh, previous traumas. It almost became quite a cosmopolitan narrative to talk about your traumas or how have you perceive yeah, it to yeah. be what you're going through as trauma. Yeah, And it was characterized for me where I was watching comedians who would do shows talking about trauma they were reliving and they would begin to cry on stage or break down on stage yeah, yeah. now I'm not saying necessarily that people may not be overcome with emotion but for me it seems a, and again you probably be able to explain it better than I can to cry at the same point in a show yeah. every day
1: I was just as you were saying that, I was thinking in my head like this is a cynical way of doing things but surely it's impossible to feel that emotional if you're doing the same set over and over again. over and
2: over or, yeah. or at some point you would probably deduce that maybe I need the therapy more than I need to deliver the set but uh yeah at one point in comedy it was like the more you cried on stage the better you did than, as opposed to making people laugh yeah yeah and then uh and then Dave Chappelle kind of changed that again when he brought his special so happy for that
1: I suppose comedy's been go- going through a lot of uh a lot of soul searching when you have things like Louis CK and Aziz Ansari and what happened to yeah. them yeah
2: well a perfect a perfect example of like rehabilitation because uh, obviously I think uh, Louis CK has been very apologetic and he's, he's received a lot of support from uh, I guess what people would say predominantly uh, men within the comedy community and obviously people are still going to his shows and stuff yeah but then obviously there are some people who are directly affected by his actions who even though he may not have had any sexual contact yeah found that sexual impropriety and unacceptable and they find it hard to believe that he'd be rehabilitated now. Yeah. yeah. And I guess it is,
1: it's just, a very sticky subject. It's a very as sticky well. subject you, and nobody is, wants is, to
2: understand stopping somebody from earning a living help to rehabilitate them. Yeah. I'm not sure if that works necessarily just by saying, because you can't make money or you're canceled, this is going to change your behavior. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it might have people, uh, it might be a way people are trying to force someone into assuming having accountability but I think you know that can also have very negative effects as well
1: what really strikes me about those two cases Louis and Aziz is that both times they were uh, very open to admitting that they're in the wrong they weren't trying to you know minimize it or deny it at all which Mm -hmm. is actually very unusual for the patient group that I see almost all of them try and deny it or minimize it or you know try and make it seem as if it as if uh they're being over proportioned the blame. Mm-hmm. Whereas those two people, they just put their hand up and said, yeah, it happened. And we're really, I'm really sorry. And you know, I am trying to be introspective yeah. about it.
2: Yeah. I think, I think and being effective in comedy uh, to, to repress certain truth is not really going to be that effective. So if you're going to, and I, and I guess comedy for me, and that's what's interesting about this, psych, the psychological aspects of it is that I think comedy is definitely born out of people. Well, in terms of in modern incarnations of it are people trying to rationalise and resolve trauma in a lot of ways and try and make sense of uh, certain aspects of their psychology and you know yeah. for comedians a lot of the time what we refer to as dark humor are people that are indulging or confronting the darker recesses of the human mind. The stuff that, you know, in other in more extreme cases like yourself, people that indulge just leads to them create, doing very heinous acts. In comedy it's like people maybe talking about narrating the journey through those darker recesses of the mind. Yeah yeah. And by able to but by being able to do so and in some way almost trivialise these things, it, it can be quite cathartic for all parties. Yeah, yeah. Because then people will be like, oh shit, I'm not the only person that has a fucked up thought every now and again during the day.
1: How common do you think that is? Because I've read, as I'm sure you have, this narrative that all comics are like you know hiding behind the tears of a clown yeah, yeah trauma and i'm sure that i absolutely accept that that's probably the case in many but i imagine that a lot of people just think they're funny and just like the attention and don't have any yeah trauma i
2: think i think i think initial cases i think yeah it was it, because of the low barriers to entry and because of the uh the oratory nature of comedy it was a very effective tool for a lot of people um but i think and you probably i think you would probably see that more in open mic a lot of people are just going on stage because it's like i can't really afford to go to a therapist but they can go to a pub and have a drink which is self-medicating and can be quite destructive but then sometimes people love that company which helps them and then they can go on stage and talk about stuff and I think sometimes just having the human validation like I said and people who maybe have been deprived of that human connection at earlier parts of their life just having the human connection of validation by what they're saying on stage having validity or people just laughing can be very uh, therapeutic for some people but I think you're right I think in a lot of cases particularly those people who I've described who uh, have um optioned or co-opted trauma yeah. for success are just people that want to be rich and famous and i think especially in cases where there's a real socio-economic aspect to that where it's now seen as a given that if you are a, a cisgender heterosexual white male then your story is quite skewed and not many people can relate to it and i think a lot of the time their women counterparts who are from the same socioeconomic groups and from the same families and same culture will have equally uh, banal stories yeah. But then, if they are able to mix in some trauma with that, then it's able to distinguish them from their male peers and be like, "Well, we're not the same as like stale, pale males because we've been through stuff as well." And yeah. but then, what I noticed particularly in comedy in the UK is that when they were having overt conversations about, you know, people who make, make acts of sexual impropriety or sexually aggress women, no black or Asian women were being consulted about this. Yeah, yeah. So there were lists going around of guys who were like creepy, but no one was telling any of the black women or any of the Asian women
1: to to look out for these guys, which I found to be very strange. For me, the key of it is that you have to be funny. That is the most important thing. I don't mind any any kind of angle of comic, you know, from surrealist humour to observational to trauma (laughs) I would happily sit and, and watch any of those comics, but they have to be funny. If yeah. you're just telling a traumatic story and you're just... Uh, to elicit an emotion victim, just for a it and playing a exactly, victim, yeah, but... Yeah. And getting a round of applause because people feel sorry for you rather than because you're funny, then that's not the kind of comedy I'm into. Really.
2: Yeah, and I, and I, and I also... Th- and I think it's quite damaging because I think, I think it uh, trivialises people who are dealing with trauma who don't have the tools or the access or resources to be able to uh, discuss it or articulate the uh, nuance of their trauma. And I think um, people hijacking that narrative on stage is quite bad. And and as I said, more simply put, like you can pay 10 grand to go to Edinburgh and talk about your trauma or go and pay for actual help, which will probably help you, probably would work a lot better because the stage isn't going anywhere. But um, I guess back to me being a psycho. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, any more questions that would give you a
1: clear Um, picture? So... I mean, again, I, I do have to, I do have to emphasize that it's a skewed assessment because I'm only getting your word for it, but I'm, I'm trusting you're telling me the truth. Uh, but feel, free, the anyone, feel free to in
2: the comments <laughs> if you think I am a psychopath, then yeah, a well, no, the psychopath
1: so. would also would also uh, convince me. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, I suppose you know, if you don't have a parasitic lifestyle, you're not leeching off other people. You you show empathy, and again, I'm taking the context out of a breakup relationship. You know, I've been through breakups, breakups as everyone has, and it can be a bit bitter, especially after it's just happened. So, I don't think that's that's. Uh, a fair representation of, of somebody's attitude towards people. Mm-hmm. It's you know it's a very um, it's a very sort of fabricated scenario. But if you're if you, um, I suppose another good question would be: Do you have like friends from school and friends from like your past yeah. life? Yeah. Are you still close with? Them?
2: Um, some yeah, some friends from school I'm closer. Friends from uni I'm relatively close with. Um, yeah, so I have a few friends
1: the reason I ask that is this is that this isn't like in the this you know there's an an official psychopathy checklist called the hair's psychopathy checklist and there's uh, official ways to formalize uh, a psychopath this is not in them but this is what I've learned from my own experience of assessing them people who are true psychopaths have a very odd social circle so they Mm. tend not to carry or keep friends for a long period of time Mm. because eventually they're going to piss off uh, people, they, Because they're going to manipulate them or because they're just not going to care mm-hmm. or show any empathy towards those people. But because they're so charming, it takes a long time for people to actually realize that this person's a psychopath. So somebody who's typically a psychopath might have friends and they might mm-hmm. be quite popular. They might be uh, you know, very confident socially, but they tend to be friends that they've not had for a long period of time and friends that somehow help them in some sort of way. Like... Celebrity friends, or friends that you know work as managers, or you know yeah. TV producers. If we're talking about the entertainment industry, but only those. They don't have cl- uh, pers- close personal friends. Yeah, uh, close personal friends. Would that describe you? Uh, <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Um, you I've, are a psychopath. Uh, I I may-
2: maybe, um, but I am prepared to take accountability, and um, and I'm prepared for a long process of rehabilitation, if that is the case. Um, however, <laughs> we we've uh, pretty much come to the end Saffron haven't we um, thank you very much uh, Shahom, for coming on the show um I think there's definitely a lot more to discuss and we want to be able to have you back on the podcast if you'd be willing to return I would absolutely love to yeah absolutely amazing and uh, obviously you're always welcome at any gigs that I have so let me know if you see anyone uh, near to you cool. um, but in the meantime could you tell our listeners and viewers where they could find out about your good works past, present and future
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely so uh, I've got a YouTube channel called A Psych for Sore Minds and it's kind of a smorgasbord of cases related to true crime and mental illness so I do my psychoanalysis of high profile cases so I do you know, your classic kind of Jeffrey Dahmers and your Chris Watts but also some more trending topics so things like Alex Belfield um, and it is as as a failed wannabe open micer stand-up comic uh, stand-up comedian I do try and make it a bit sort of zany and funny you only uh,
2: fail if you didn't try I want you to know that okay <laughs> it's more important to try it and say you've done it
1: you should put that on a t-shirt yeah I'd like that um, and I've also got a book called In Two Minds I actually bought a copy for you oh and thank you the, very uh, much yeah amazing uh, which is kind of my professional memoirs of the most interesting extreme cases that I've assessed and my kind of journey of being a forensic psychiatrist
2: that sounds amazing thank you very much for coming on the podcast I hope that this evaluation hasn't been too harrowing for you uh, but yeah if you ever um, want to be uh, evaluated on your competency as a comedian I'm always free <laughs>
1: <Okay>. <laughs> thank you very much thank you You've been listening to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, hosted by Dane Baptiste and myself, Howard Cohen. For more from Dane and myself, make sure you follow us on Instagram at Dane Snaptiste and at The Howard Cohen. You can now support us on Patreon. Just search DBQE Podcast and unlock ad free content, and you can watch the full length video of the podcast. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for Dane, make sure you send us a DM on Instagram. At DBQE Podcast. And we could feature you in our next episode. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember, question everything. Insanity Group.
0: A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend.